Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode here at Feelin' Film. I'm Patch, and joining me this week are my best friend and co-host, Aaron 1.0. Hello. And for the second episode in a row, Aaron 2.0. Hey, guys. This week, we are celebrating a movie that turned 30 years old on July 21st, and will actually have a special return to theaters on December 1st. Rob Reiner's When Harry Met Sally stands out as one of, if not the definitive romantic comedy. And we are going to discuss why, because, you know, it's a movie podcast, and that's what we do here. Before that, though, one quick announcement from Aaron 1.0. All right. Our October's donor pick is right around the corner. That always takes place from the 1st to the 10th of the month, where our patrons, that is our loyal supporters on Patreon.com, get to vote for one episode each month. This month, in honor of Halloween, we have chosen five zombie flicks. You can visit Patreon.com slash Film to become a supporter. Voters and voting privileges start as low as $1 a month and go up to about $5 a month. Do that if you want to eventually get one of our really, really cool t-shirts. And those five movies that you're going to have to choose from in October are 28 Days Later, Dawn of the Dead, the 2004 remake, I Am Legend, The Crazies, the 2010 remake, and the original Resident Evil. So if you want to be a part of the voting process, as I said, patreon.com slash film. Also, if you're enjoying the show, we would love to have your input on iTunes. iTunes reviews mean the world to us. They help increase visibility of the show. And even more than reviews, just a five-star rating really does help us out. It will allow us to eventually get listed on that Rotten Tomatoes meter in the sky, as well as have some other visibility perks that we would love to attain. So if you have time and an iTunes account, you don't have to be an Apple user. You can borrow somebody else's and go rate the show and let everybody know what you think of us. Thank you, Aaron. And with that said, we are entering spoiler territory. So if you haven't had a chance to watch this amazing movie, please do yourself a favor and check it out and then join us for the conversation when you do. Beginning with our one-word takeaways, we're going to let Aaron 2.0 kick us off. Aaron, what was your one-word takeaway for When Harry Met Sally? Inspirational. This movie, I mean, if you listen to the last episode I I guest started on, we talked about about time and about how much I adore rom-coms. And this movie, in my opinion, is like the quintessential rom-com that inspired so many other films. And I know we're going to talk about that later, so I'll just leave it at inspirational. How about you, Aaron 1.0? This is like one of the only times that two gets to go before one, apparently. But I'll allow it. My one-word takeaway was... Suck it. <laughs> that was not your one-word takeaway. That's actually a two-word takeaway. A two-word takeaway, and I will leave it, not take it. Um, <laughs> I've tried that before. There, My one-word takeaway was genuine. There's really just something so genuine about everything in this movie. The script is absolutely incredible. From the opening scenes with Harry, I was looped into it and just completely engaged in it. That the way they talk to each other, the way that Harry is brutally honest about how guys actually think, the way that Sally is trying to hide how much she enjoys being around him, and they both are kind of trying to play these stereotypical roles that they feel are appropriate. 
and the entire way that they have this loving but dysfunctional friendship. Stories like this one are not so much about wondering where the destination is, but they're more about like living in those moments with the characters who we can relate to so much. And I was just hooked and engrossed until the very end, even though I knew exactly how it was going to end up. But seeing them argue and laugh and then agree and cry and fall in love, it was all just a big, cuddly, warm hug to my heart. And because of how genuine it is, it was able to elevate my emotions as I recalled many similar moments and uh, relationships in my own life. Fantastic, guys. I pulled out the word longevity as my one word takeaway. And I, I think when I watch this movie, it has that long-term appeal as being just an amazing movie 30 years old this year and still there are parts of it that surprise me parts that make me smile parts that make me cry it is refreshing every time i watch it because it's a movie that i look forward to watching it's not one that i'm like oh yeah this would be fun to put on no it's i'm intentionally saying i need someone harry met sally in my life because i'm dealing with something difficult or I want to laugh, or I want to have a bit of that genuineness that you talked about, Aaron. I I take a movie like this, and I feel like it celebrates longevity, not only in its like long term, like how long it's been around, but also in showing this relationship and how it's stood the test of time. It celebrates that longevity in relationships, and not just the romantic side, but really about friendship. And even some of the messages that live inside its narrative, I feel like have a lot of relevance today. We can, we'll probably get into more of that as the discussion goes on. But I, I think when you look at a movie like this, that isn't an epic, it's not a thriller, it's not something that's thought of as nostalgic, which is why it has current appeal. Really, you look back on it and you think, this is a movie that stands above really anything else in its genre. And Aaron 2.0, you mentioned on the last episode, I don't know if it was actually online or offline, but I know you were talking to us about the fact that this is one of the, was it three or five movies that you recommended to your, uh, to your boyfriend to watch because it would help him understand you more. Is that is it Was it three or five? Remember? Yeah, so um, about a year and a half ago, I had just started dating uh, my partner, and he and I were just talking and randomly, you know, given my love of movies and the pod and podcasting and stuff like that, I just I randomly asked him, I was like, you know, if there were like, I actually told him, I was like, if there were three to five movies that I could watch to get a better feel for who you were, because I mean, I tell his pe- people this openly, but like for the first like six months of our relationship, I debated breaking up with my partner, <laughs> like. And we, I was just, we both were in a weird space where neither one of us knew whether or not we were invested and we both just kind of stayed anyway. And obviously it worked out because we're still together, but like, it was just, it was one of those things where in the beginning of our relationship, I was just trying to figure him out and I couldn't, I was trying to find whatever medium that could happen in. And, um, I just chose something that I always love. And I think is a great way of viewing various characters in different perspectives, because I feel like the same movie can be watched by two different people and two different people will take completely different things away from it. Um, and so I initially gave him five. I can remember what three or four of them are off the top of my head, but I can't or not for life. And you can't remember all of them, 
But when Harry met Sally, it was one of them. And um, it's because I had to accept a long time ago that I am Sally. Um, it was not easy. I refused it for a long time because I knew that Sally was viewed in the movie as a very difficult woman. Um, I see it very differently now. Um, because I don't think that there really are difficult people in this world. I think it's all about perspective and what you bring to the table and whether or not you are difficult. I don't know a better word for it yourself. And that somebody else has the tools or the equipment to deal with those personality traits. Um, I like all of my food on the side. I hate my food touching. Absolutely cannot stand my food touching. I like to be the one that intentionally makes my food touch because I like to know that the flavors that I'm putting together, I am choosing. I cannot stand like dump dinners where you put everything in a pot, stir it, and then throw it together. The only the only thing that I will like amend that on are like casserole dishes or like pot pies. But again, that's something that you like intentionally made as a unit, not something that you thought, oh, this might taste good together and just threw it all together and hope for the best. Um, I am very similar to Sally in the way that she approaches relationships, the way that she approaches things very logically, very compartmentalized. Um, and she's very um, reserved with her emotional expression. Like I absolutely love the scene where she explains that her and um, what is the name of her boyfriend that she's with whenever is it Jacob or uh, Joe? Uh, it's Joe. Joe. I was like, it starts with a J. The when she's with Joe and they break up, and she's like, Joe and I we decided to break up, and she's like, it happened like a week ago, and she's like, I'm she's like I'm over it, but I'm in a mourning period, and I'm pretty sure that I have literally said those exact same words to people on more than one occasion. Like, you know how you feel, and you know how you're supposed to feel, but you just need the time to like process those emotions. So there are a lot of ways where just retroactively looking back and seeing the way that I viewed Sally the first time that I watched When Harry Met Sally, the way that I viewed Harry the first time I watched the movie, it's very um based in like the patriarchy of what society has told me I should view women and men separately, which I think is ironic given what this movie is trying to fight against actively. Um, and then I just realized that the more that I've grown over the years, this movie has still stayed in my top five, top ten films of all time. And Every time I watch it, I find new layers to it and I find new things that I love about it. And I look back and I'm, I'm sad for the way that I viewed it before. But I think that without being able to look back on it and see how much I've grown and see those differences and be able to point them out, this movie wouldn't mean as much. So I, I can't be all too mad about it. I kind of feel like you gave it a statute of limitations on apologizing. You came in just under the radar to apologize for how you viewed it the first time based on how you feel yeah. about it now. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've loved this movie for a very, very long time. Granted it came out before I believe it's 89, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Just at 30 years. Um, so it came out before I was born. So I still did not see this movie probably until college um, was when I really started to delve into um, like watching like Nora Ephron kind of movies, Rob Reiner's like some of the classic movies and stuff like that, like sleepless and things like that. And so when I first saw this, I still loved the movie, but I just had a different, a different thinking cap on, I think is the best way to a different filter over my eyes. Well, based on how you're describing yourself, that's pretty fantastic that when Harry met Sally and specifically the character of Sally is essentially a template for who you are. And I would like to pose this to our listeners. And if you're connected to the Facebook group, maybe sound off. Uh, is there a movie out there or a character that if you had to give someone a, a template for who you might be is it a character in a movie or is it a particular movie not necessarily your favorite movie but if someone could say this is who patches and then you'd say 
here. Here are the three movies or here are the two characters. You, know, you mash these two characters up. So I'd be interested to see if you guys have thoughts. And I'm asking our, you know, Aaron 1.0 as well, because I know we haven't talked about this, but it might be something worth, uh, worth asking. Yeah, that would be awesome. You can drop those responses in the post that's always in the Facebook group for each episode. You could do it on the Facebook page if you're not in the Facebook group, or you could even respond on Twitter to the pinned uh, post for this episode as well. That would be really cool, though, to hear from listeners as to like who they would use to describe themselves based on a movie. I don't know. I'm not going to try and guess off the cuff because <laughs> I would just fail miserably, especially with a headache. But I was going to say that I feel you, Aaron, because I actually relate much more to Sally than I do to Harry, I think, in this film. Now, I am much more emotionally expressive. That is a fact. I do not have a problem letting it be known what my feelings are about pretty much anything at any time. But there is so much about Sally that I do completely relate to. Just the way in which everything is organized, everything is going to be the way that Sally wants it. When she was ordering in the diner in the beginning, not just because she's saying, you know, she wants things on the side, but she's very specific about how she wants her things. And she's unapologetic about that. And that is something that I have always had as a character trait, especially now that I'm keto, because I have to order like that all the freaking time. But just in general, I have never been one to give in to, like, I guess what I would feel like is the peer pressure of the way I should be doing something. And I feel like Sally exhibits that um, many, many times. And she just is, I don't know, she's she's so biting and sarcastic in her tones. Um, and I really appreciate the way that she is not going to give herself, or she's not going to let herself be settling, is what I feel like she's trying not to do. Now, at least with regards to in one way, right? She's not going to settle for what she thinks is Harry and not the thing that she wants. Now she may come to find out that what she thinks she wants is different, but with regards to what she wants, she doesn't settle. Um, she is very headstrong about going to get the thing that she believes she uh, is going to be best for her. And I do that too, but I don't know, man, it is a really, really good question. And I think it's cool because when I watched this and knowing Aaron 2.0 had said that she saw herself as Sally already, I could immediately see it. And I was like, I even texted you during the movie. And I'm like, yep, I get it. Like you are freaking Sally. Like you are not kidding. This is really cool. So I hope that people out there can figure out a better comparison for themselves. And I will try to figure out mine as well at some point this week and put it up. Well, listeners, yeah, if you would just like to, well, I would just like to clarify that Sally is emotionally expressive. So she is just very contained with her emotional expressiveness. She's very logical in it, but she has no problem telling people how she feels about what they're saying. I mean, she calls Harry a pig and drops the F-bomb in his face. She, she, there are plenty of times where she's told, you know, Marie how she feels about things, especially about like Marie's obsession with married men and things like that. So Sally is emotionally expressive. I think she's just not, um, I don't want to say emotionally invested in what she expresses, but she does not express emotion in a stereotypical way. Like she's not constantly crying or yelling in anger. Like she's not a, uh, I don't, I don't know what, a, I can't think of the, a better word to describe it, but she is expressive and with intent of her emotions. I would say she's strategic with her emotions yes. and that's consistent with her 
ability to control her desire to control the situation, whether it's quirky things like how to order all the way up to processing how she's going to respond to the snarkiness that is Harry Dunn. And I think it's a beautiful thing to watch because her facial expressions say a lot as she's hearing what he's saying because she's feeling, you could tell that she's feeling kind of flabbergasted, but she's not speechless. I, I really think she's strategically going, okay, what can I say that will basically cut at him where he will just shut up? Uh, and early on, you see that quite a bit, especially in the 18 hour car ride where she's, I would say she's not necessarily trying to win a battle, but she's trying to get to a place where she can shut him down, knowing that she's not going to win, but she needs him to just stop because they are not going to agree. And so silence is probably the best option at that point. And I think her nonverbal cues speak equally as much as what she says verbally. So I think it's very controlling. The other question I, I wanted to ask you, Aaron 2.0, was you mentioned that this movie pioneered other romantic comedies, not necessarily in those words. And listeners, if you're just now tuning in, this is your first episode. Where have you been? Come on, join us. But if you weren't on uh, and didn't hear our thoughts on About Time and even some of the bonus content that we released for some of our patrons, all of our patrons, not some of them, I'm sorry, you know that we talk about some of the character traits of a romantic comedy. And I think it was even mentioned that this was kind of the launching pad for what romantic comedies are, what they should be, what they've become. And I wanted to unpack that from your perspective, Aaron. What is that exactly? Like, what is it about when Harry met Sally that sort of pioneered everything else? So I think it comes from a lot of different things. Um, I know that Nora has done a lot of interviews, especially this year, given that we're hitting the anniversary. And on multiple occasions, she goes back and she talks about what inspired her to write this movie to begin with. So she talks about how Rob, Rob Reiner, had come to her and was like, I want to do a movie about people who are friends. They decide they don't want to have sex because they don't want to ruin their friendship. But of course, they inevitably do. And it inevitably does. So she talks about how like Reiner and I think uh, his partner's name was Shineman, I think is uh, his name, Andrew, um, and how they they worked with her discussing the ways that men viewed relationships so that she could have some internal perspective on it and the way that they approach relationships. Um, I know that she's talked about how they were the ones that told her how men just lay there counting the minutes until they can leave and it's not awkward. Um, and stuff like that. And so she explains how whenever uh, they were having these conversations, Reiner had just gone through a divorce. And so a lot of what she based Harry's depression on was based off of Reiner post-divorce. And so a lot of the way that Harry walks through his darker moments in the beginning middle part of that movie is based off of how Reiner was depressed post his divorce. Because Harry was so dark, she knew that she wanted to create a character that brought a lot more life into it, despite the fact that Harry was the one that was supplying a lot of the pithy quips and whips and back and forth. And ironically, she jokes that like the way that Sally orders food is partially inspired by the way that Nora orders her food, because she also orders her food very separately like that. Um, but the biggest thing that struck me is that this movie just it you see pieces of this film in everything from uh, uh, 27 Dresses, Sleepless in Seattle, um, My Best Friend's Wedding. You see a lot of the pithy back and forths of best friend relationships that ultimately transform throughout a film. Whether that results in the same ending 
as when Harry met Sally, or if it results in something where you, you know, you have friends that don't end up together, or you end up with movies that, um, people who weren't friends, but they had that, um, that quipping back and forth kind of relationship. It's just, this movie has launched a lot of different things, but something that I don't think a lot of people realize is that this movie changed the way that a lot of people talk about sex. And I know that that, that scene in the diner, everybody loves and it's, they think it's funny and, you know, it's, it is hilarious. Obviously it's, they, they joke about how this, this scene alone actually started to become bigger than the whole movie, which I think is pretty funny. Um, and sidebar, if you didn't know, the woman that says I'll have what she's having is Estelle Reiner, and that is Rob Reiner's mother, and that I think is the funniest part of the whole film. Um, but what they talk about is how when the movie was first shown in, um, like in, uh, the convention center, whenever they were talking to movie distributors and showing them, none of the men laughed at that scene. It was really, really quiet, but every single woman in there was hollering because every single woman related to what that scene was. Eventually the laughter just trickled through the room and it just became infectious. And so they talk about how it's something that men for the first time realize, Oh my gosh, I'm not as good at this as I may have thought I was. And a lot of women were like, yeah, we've been faking it for a really long time. Are you actually open to learning about it? Or you're just going to keep doing what you're doing. So it changed a lot of, the ways that we do things in films, romantic comedies, but it also was educational for some people on the perspective of sex and the way that women view sex versus the way that men view sex, which I know is a huge theme in the movie, but there's that aspect of it that people don't think about. They think about, okay, well, women view sex as romantic and men view sex as this like carnal thing that they just have to do. And it's an aesthetic thing. So I think that there is this perspective as well, that women understand that for men, there's a lot of ego in this, and we have to do X, Y, and Z in order to get A, B, and C. So I think this movie was just, like, again, harking back to my inspirational one-word takeaway, is this movie just inspired a lot of different things, and you see elements of it in movies the last 30 years. One of the big questions that are asked is, can a woman, and can a man and a woman just be, and the film challenges it quite a bit. How do each of you respond to that question? Is there do you agree with that? Do you disagree? Do you feel like it's a question that's still relevant today? Absolutely. It's a question that's still relevant today as to can men and women just be friends? I mean, I think that the easy answer is yes, there is plenty of proof that men and women can be friends. But when Harry starts off the conversation towards the beginning of the film by explaining to her that men and women can't be friends because if the man finds the woman attractive uh, it's impossible and you know i chuckled at that because there is a level of truth to that as well and i i don't think that it is something that has to be the standard but it's definitely something that is a belief or a stereotype typical belief for a reason it's because there are a lot of men who experience this feeling right where once you have feelings for a person, it becomes very difficult to change the way that you view that person from being something that you are someone who you are romantically interested in into being someone you are comfortable with just being friends. I would say maturity is the word that I think of. I think it comes down to maturity because in my younger years, when I was not mature, 
I was selfishly going about relationships of this very same type where I thought like Harry. And if you weren't interested in me and I was interested in you, I was not going to be able to be friends with you because I was going to allow myself to feel jealousy and to be woe is me. And, you know, why am I not good enough? Compare myself to this person's significant other. As I've matured, obviously I've grown and I think I've been able to get away from that to where I understand that that's not always going to be the case and that just friends is a perfectly reasonable and acceptable way for a relationship to go. (laughs) And I think that it's intriguing here because that's not how the movie ends up. I mean, you could almost imagine an alternate film or alternate story here where the big ending is that they end up just friends and they are best friends and they don't have a romance together. And it proves Harry's point wrong. And he learns that they don't have to, you know, end up having sex and being together forever. And he can be attracted to her physically, but also just be her friend. That's an entirely interesting, different movie that could have been made. So I think that it is a real challenge for people still today. Um, and I would say that unless you address it with yourself very intentionally, that it's not something that is going to naturally change for a lot of men. Like it is just an innate response for us. And I don't know if it's something that maybe we feel like we've grown up with because of experiences or, or because of the things we've seen in men that are in our lives and the way that they enter relationships or what, but it is definitely something that you can change that response as a man. If you don't allow yourself to put your, your own feelings at the center of this thing and you don't hold, I think what essentially that belief is, is that you're holding a person, a woman or somebody else responsible for your attraction, right? And that's obviously not something that is okay. And that that is not something that anyone should ever have to have those expectations put on them. Um, It's not their responsibility. So, yeah, I think that it's definitely still a problem today um, because we see it happen. We see teenagers and it's usually younger people, I believe, that are, you know, able to not understand their feelings yet. And so they act inappropriately on them. But that's yeah, I think it can change. But I do think it's still an issue. Aaron 2.0, what about you? I got a lot of thoughts. Big shock, right? Okay, so first things first, while I do not disagree with what you're saying, Aaron, obviously we're going to have potentially fundamental different approaches because we are man and woman and we have different life experiences. However, I think the root of all of this comes down to two different things. One, and I wish you guys could see the hand gestures that I'm doing as I'm talking because this is something that I'm super passionate about. But like one, the whole just friends or friend zone thing, friend zone was created by men, not by women, period. Can't argue with me on it. And it comes from a root of men thinking that they are owed sex from the appearance of friendship. And so you are talking about how you can't do this because a man will develop feelings. We're not talking about developing feelings or wanting to be romantically linked to a person. We're talking about that a man wants to have sex with a woman. And so he thinks they can't be friends if she doesn't want to have sex with him. 
So emotions aside, the root of Harry's argument has nothing to do with developing relationship buyers for a partner. It has nothing to do with desiring sexual arousal from somebody and them not wanting to give it to them. And then they think they're owed it so they can't be friends. With Harry and Sally, the root of both of them is, I mean, and this comes down to my favorite, one of my favorite scenes in the entire thing is the Sheldon scene in the restaurant. Um, give it to me, Sheldon. Sheldon, a.k.a. the Wonderschlong. Like, it's it's the fact that Harry regards sex as a wham-bam, thank you, ma'am kind of thing. And even Sally seems to approach sex very logically when she talks about her days with the week underpants and things like that. And it it has everything to do with... And the thing that I love about Sally is that you don't see the stereotypical emotional attachment to sex from Sally that you see from a lot of women in these stereotypical roles where they're like, well, I don't love him, so I can't have sex with him. Or like, you don't ever have those kind of conversations. You see Marie, who's having multiple affairs with multiple married men, and it has nothing to do with emotions. So I think that this this movie does challenge a lot of those stereotypes by proving that there are ways that you could be friends if you wanted to set those things aside. And that's where I will agree with you, Erin, is that it comes down to a root of wanting to set your selfishness aside and thinking that you are owed either a sexual response from somebody or an emotional response from somebody. And that if they don't give you what you think you're owed, it's wrong and you can't be a part of it. Now, I'm not saying that if you have truly developed these deep, abiding, loving relations, like a loving feelings with this person, that you can't just say, okay, this is just too difficult. I've been in those situations where I, I just had to step back and say, you know, I would love to be friends with you, but I just emotionally, I, I can't do this. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. So I can't say definitively, yes, men and women can be friends. But I think that depending on the man and depending on the woman and depending on their level of maturity, to agree with you, Aaron, and their level of selflessness when it comes to their their relationship or just doing what sally did and setting boundaries i think boundaries are super important like whether it be okay like we have dinner together once a week to maintain the friendship and catch up on things but like we don't do things that stereotypically relationships would happen in we don't you know i have friends that have no problem holding hands with their male friends and i'm like okay that's great for you too i was like but for me i i wouldn't want to do that unless i'm romantically linked to somebody but there are also people and i i 100% applaud people that want to break the chains of what we have socially told people are the only things that you can be intimate in. So I'm all about giving friends that are male or female kisses on the cheek, long hugs, where I just hope we just hold each other and there's nothing romantic there. If the other person feels some sense of romance and they say, I can't do that because of X, okay, I'm going to respect that, obviously. But intimacy does not have to be something. And I know we talked about this on about time. Intimacy is so different than just sex and holding hands and making out with your partner like you have the ability to be intimate with friends too but it comes with setting up those boundaries so i think that as long as you don't think that you're owed sex or owed some emotional response you're mature and selfless enough to set your desires aside or you've communicated those desires with this friend and you guys are working through something and then you set up boundaries i think yeah men and women can definitely be friends but again it's it's situational. You can't say definitively one way or another that, yes, this is going to work for every man and woman pair. And that's what makes this movie work is because the film starts out trying to sarcastically, tongue in cheek, put men and women in a box by having these two conversations. You look at Harry and you're going, uh, uh-uh. uh, you look at Sally and you're like, mm, no, this, no, this isn't. You see these two people that are trying to 
essentially unintentionally represent their respective genders, their respective sexes by saying what they do. And as an audience, we laugh at that. But the fact is, I almost feel like because of the longevity of their relationship, it's almost like the longevity of an individual who has to learn and grow and understand that um, that you have things to learn. You have the ability to understand another person's perspective and particularly someone from the opposite sex. When I look at a movie like this, I think that that's a very loaded question. Can a man and woman just be friends? Because what does that mean to be friends? Does that mean to just be platonic without sex, which you make a great point there, Aaron 2.0? It can be. I've had lots of relationships with women that did not involve sex. But what's the level of intimacy? What's the level of trust? What's the level of vulnerability that I've had with those women? It varies. And then once you decide, once I decided to get married, what's the appropriate level of intimacy with those friendships? There's no sex. There's no romance. But do I still call these women and talk about my (laughs) marital issues? Do I talk about things that are going on in my life that I can't tell anybody else, not even my best friend? Well, now you've added another layer to that because, first of all, I don't believe that I married my best friend. I think that that is fine for some people. For me, that doesn't. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. I just had a discussion with somebody today about that. And I was just like, (laughs) there was a meme that they sent me that was just like, for every post that says, today I married my best friend, the real best friend is sitting there rolling their eyes in the background. Yeah, yeah, I can uh, agree to that. Yeah, as the best friend, I'm glad you didn't marry your best friend. <laughs> that would be awkward. <laughs> I mean, y'all are kind of cute together, I guess. In Aww. A strange kind of way. Yeah, it works, it works. <laughs> well, in today's culture, what you have is almost like a lack of permission to have those kinds of platonic relationships. Uh, let's assume that we're that a person's not in a relationship. There was a long time in high school where I had a good friend of mine and Monday nights we would go we would get together and we'd watch wrestling. And it was great. And there was a season in my life where I really wasn't interested in dating anyone. And there were people that thought I was a homosexual because I wasn't in a relationship and it frustrated me. Because it it was like I couldn't have permission to live a life that didn't have an interest in someone of the opposite sex. Because the world that I lived in, which I think is common to a lot of people, is that if you're not in a relationship, you should be pursuing one. And if you're pursuing one, then it needs to be for something long term. Um, I went to a college where it was a small 1500 student college, Southern Baptist uber conservative. And one of the big jokes was that women go there to get their MRS degrees. So by the time you get out of college, you should have a ring on your finger. Mm -hmm. And as a freshman idiot, I was like, hey, that's funny. But I'm pretty sure to a lot of the women that were going to that school, they were like, that's ridiculous. And I'm offended by that. And as an 18 year old, I didn't take that into account. Asked someone, are you getting your MRS degree? And she's like, don't ever, ever ask me that again. So needless to say, I didn't marry that girl. Good for Um, her. Good for her, though. (laughs) Good for her, right? So I think in the context of the world we live in today, that question is still valid. I think it takes on different kinds of connotations. I think it has the level of relationships without sex. Are they genuine? But it also has those other components where when does a relationship with some of the opposite sex 
need to be put in a limited capacity? Is it when you fall in love and marry, not your best friend necessarily, but you marry your wife or your husband, where do those other relationships go? And I believe that there there need to be those hard conversations, those vulnerable conversations that say, our friendship is valuable, but I've chosen and I'm marrying this person and this relationship probably needs to end at this level because of the potential that it could go. Because when you have friendships, and I think when Harry Met Sally really, really shows this well, when you have relationships with people of the opposite sex and you're not in a relationship, there's no pressure to have a level of commitment. I mean, these guys can be completely blunt with each other. One of my favorite scenes is the scene where Harry is is talking to Jess at the at the batting cage and he's saying I can I can say things to her that I can't say to anyone else not even you and he talks very bluntly about how he made a woman meow when he had sex with her I don't know that he actually told Sally that but I'd like to believe that he did because of the vulnerability because of the comfort level that he had with her because he's not expecting any and he's not trying to impress her I remember having dinner with my now wife early on and we we consider this kind of a milestone for our relationship. We went out and had sushi and we were able to talk about our first encounter and the bad blind date that we had and look at it with a lot of truth and to say, you know what? That was a bad, bad situation. And I apologize. And we both understood that we weren't in the best place to try to make a relationship work with each other. And we started having honest conversations about, what it is that we want in a partner, in a life partner, in a wife or a husband, but without the intent that we were trying to impress one another, right? And that was probably one of the most amazing conversations I'd had with a woman because it was probably the first time I realized I can talk to this woman and not feel like I'm trying to feed her what she wants to hear in order to get her to like me. We are enjoying each other's company and we're understanding each other on a different level without that pressure of having to be in a relationship. And coincidentally, we ended up being in a relationship and getting married and celebrating 11 years this past August. So there's something pretty magical about having a friendship without, not without strings, but without the attachment of expectations, as you mentioned, Aaron 2.0. I, I love that because it opens the door for... <laughs> more vulnerability and the risk that you're going to fall in love with that person. But it also opens up the door to be able to show more of yourself that you wouldn't, that a person's going to start falling in love with your quirks and your idiosyncrasies and the things that other people might call your faults. And those things, when they're accepted by someone, matter a lot more than how you look in the mirror or how fat your wallet is or what kind of job you have or how you're able to secure a person's life financially speaking. And Harry and Sally's relationship celebrates that to me. And that's what I really, really, really like about this is the fact that these two people without really intending to showed each other almost everything about one another. And there was some flinching but there wasn't, it wasn't until sex got in the way that the awkwardness really took hold. 
And I think that I don't know if it's a positive thing or if it's encouraging or maybe it's just funny, but watching this movie, I celebrate that. I celebrate their whole story. And, and I think that's why a lot of people might do the same because it's very authentic. And even if they didn't get together at the end, I think I would have been okay with that because I wasn't celebrating or rooting for them to get together. I was rooting for them to have a great friendship, a great relationship. If that involved marriage, if that involved sex, those were plus ones to me. I wanted them to have resolution more than anything else. I would just like to point out in the first draft of the script, Harry and Sally didn't end up together. And Nora loved that because and I honestly, like I said before, I love I love realistic endings. And that was her reasoning for not having them end up together, that she felt like it was more realistic. Oh, so we're all three on board with that idea then. So that's that's really cool that we all three see it that way. I think that that says a lot for the way the film is written, uh, that you can do that and both love the fact that they get together and respond to it very deeply while also having no problem if they didn't. Something else that I see the the movie doing really well is playing with that sense of timing. It's a really, really cool theme. And it raises the question about someone possibly being, quote, the one. I don't quite know how I feel about that. And I want to hear your thoughts. How do you guys feel about that? Did is Do you think that's what the movie's doing? Do you think it's challenging that? Did you pick up on any of those things? Well, I hate, hate, hate the idea that there is one person out there for you. And that is the only person. And if you don't get them, you're screwed, right? And as it goes back, sort of what That's I think how you really feel. <laughs> I, I would I would guess that Aaron 2.0 agrees from what she said earlier. Um, and you know, there's a part in this movie where Marie is talking to Sally, and she expresses this. She says, "All I'm saying is that there's someone out there. There is somewhere out there. There is a man you are supposed to marry, and if you don't get him first, somebody else will." And you'll have to spend the rest of your life knowing that somebody else is married to your husband. That is a dangerous piece of advice, in my opinion. And I think that that line of thinking can lead people to all kinds of wrong choices in their relationships or lead them to not being able to make the most wise decisions with regards to their relationships. This idea that once you have sold yourself because nobody's out there with a sign that says, Hey, guess what? I'm the one for Aaron white that lives in Marysville, Washington. You know, you know what I mean? Like there's no higher power. I mean, there is a higher power, but there's, there's no like definitive arrow that tells you this is that person. So it's all based on your belief that that is the person. And so when you do that, if you're wrong, you could be making all kinds of choices. I've been married twice myself, and I have absolutely strongly believed at one time in my life that both of those people were my one and only. Well, guess what? That's two people, and two people can't be your one and only, so that doesn't work. Um, I just, I've seen a lot of people who I feel like have wasted years of their life either waiting for this magical person to come around, or have allowed themselves to stay in a relationship that they probably shouldn't have because they were tied to this idea 
that this is the right person and there is no way the grass could ever be greener on the other side that they should just deal with it. There is a book that I love by a man named author named Robbins, who is actually from Seattle. The book's called Still Life with Woodpecker. And there's a quote in it and it says, um, I'm trying to remember the quote now. Basically the sentiment is we don't find the perfect lover. We create the perfect love. And 40 year old me is a very strong believer that that is true, that you two people make love <laughs> pun and not intended slash intended, I guess, but like two people create the love that a relationship will have between the two of them with decision making. And because of that, that means that my possible mate potential is infinite and I could potentially create a loving, lasting, lifelong marriage with anyone. If that person and I were both determined and both felt the same way about making that happen. And so I just, I hate, 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 hate the idea of the one out there for you. I, I just really don't like it. Aaron 2.0. I mean, I don't think that I feel as strongly with as many hates attached to it, but I do think that the notion that there is just one person out there can lead to a lot of toxic behavior and a lot of toxic relationships. But I think that that again comes from the maturity aspect that we talked about in the last question. Um, the way that I like to kind of view relationships is if someone makes you happy, then they're the one right now. And that's what, that's what matters is the fact that you're both happy. They don't have to be the one forever. And I, I, I know that we keep going back to the different levels of relationships and friendships and intimacy, but I view friendships very much the same way. I am, if you're into Enneagrams, I am a, I am a six. I am a loyalist. So I am very, very, I get attached very easily and I get very, very territorial over my friends. Um, I feel the same way about relationships and it's not necessarily in a jealous way, but it's just more of like, you're mine. Like I get to keep you. You are, I can has no, like <laughs> they're, they're yours. And, and it's one of those things where I had to learn in a lot of really tough, tough ways that sometimes people are seasonal and, and just as they are seasonal for you, you may be seasonal for them. They come into your life. You can learn something, have an amazing time with them or have a not so amazing time with them and still walk away with a lesson. You will be a different person from having them in your life, but that doesn't mean that everyone in your life is meant to be there forever. I am currently dealing with um, a grandfather who is failing in health, and he and my grandmother have been together since she was 15 and he was 18. They have spent every single moment of their lives together since then. In fact, one of their stories could have been one of the cute little old people interviews from this movie. Like, they have an amazing life and an amazing love story. And even though they've been together for 70 plus years, that doesn't mean that when one of them passes, it still wasn't seasonal. It was just a really long season. So I don't like to think in the one, but at the end of the day, if you end up with one person for the rest of your life, then that was the one right now. And that right now just continued for a really long time. Yeah. In a lot of ways, I look at, I look at marriage, um, in terms of how, I was taught growing up and being under the, the guidance of our, our former pastor. He told us in some of our premarital counseling, he said, here's the deal. When you're looking for the one, and he used that kind of tongue in cheek, like, like we are, 
when you get married, that's the one. <laughs> because he sees marriage, and and we do too, as being definitive till death to us part. And I get that there's a lot of wrestling that can be had with something that's definitive like that. But he wanted to emphasize the fact that we're making a big choice. That for us, marriage was not about, we'll do this until we don't feel like it anymore. It was about, we'll do this even though we don't feel like doing it anymore because it can't be about feelings and choosing to love, choosing to be together, knowing that marriage is that seal that does that takes out the whole, the one equation. And can I just, sorry, can I just push on that just a little bit? Mm -hmm. But that's not saying that the people who do decide that their marriage is not right are doing something wrong. They still entered into it, hopefully, with the thought that this is that seal. This is what we both want. And not everybody that decides to separate or divorce is thinking, I don't want to do this anymore, or I'm bored, or I don't want to choose to love you. Sometimes divorce is the best option for a couple and for any of the children that might be involved. I just wanted to put that out there. I know you believe that. I just wanted to also add that. Yeah, it's... Marriage is, this is a longer conversation, but marriage is one of those things that relationships can be toxic. And if, if someone is beating on someone else, just to take the extreme, you don't need to be in that relationship and a marriage license and a commitment to love through is challenged at that point. My wife and I, when we first got married, she said, what are your deal breakers? And I said, if you cheat on me, that's a deal breaker. For our 10-year anniversary, she, <laughs> we were driving down the road and she said, can I ask a question? And I said, of course you can. And she said, I want to ask the question that I asked you a year into our marriage. What are some deal breakers? And I said, I remember telling you that infidelity was the deal breaker. And she said, yeah, how do you feel about that now? And I said, as hard as it would be to accept that 10 years into this for you and I, it would be difficult, but it would not be, I would be willing to fight through that. It would be difficult. And the thing is, is I couldn't say for sure, like, yep, that's my way out. I, and I don't know how I would feel. That's the thing is I don't know in the moment if I'd found out that my wife was having an affair, that somebody else was in our bed next to my wife, how would I take that? But I'd like to think that historically there's enough between the two of us that that decision wouldn't be as easy as it would have been year one. And I think that that's part of what I was understanding about the nature of of marriage and what our, our pastor was saying is that historically you have, you start gaining that history and that works even in friendships. When you have these long-term friendships and you know, deep things about the other person. You can say hard things and you can experience hard things between the two of you, but it doesn't have to be the end of the relationship. You work through those things. You become more available to be able to do that. That being said, I also know that there are, there are relationships, there are marriages that just, they don't work. And it's not because of the fact that they just don't want to do it anymore. There there's toxicity to that and they need to end. Right. It's like Jess tells Harry, he says specifically in the movie, and I believe it might even be during that batting cage scene that you were talking about, where he says, marriages don't break up on account of infidelity. 
It's just a symptom that something else is wrong. Right. And of course, the beauty of the script is the, the zinger, the, the comedy line that comes after that, but that makes it fun. Oh, really? Well, that symptom is effing my wife. <laughs> but that's so true. Like, and I think that that backs up exact, or that is agreeing with what you're expressing right here is that it's not the act that is the problem. It's whatever is causing that person in the relationship to believe that that act is now acceptable or necessary, that there's yeah. something else going on. Um, and the characters here are in the process of learning that through their failed relationships, which we would like to believe in the, that that's going to lead to Harry and Sally having a relationship that doesn't fall into those same problems. And something else that the movie does that is very true is it reminds us that the stinger of our previous relationship and how that went down is still there. That moment in the mall, at the, I guess it was the sharper image, maybe when they were singing Surrey with a fringe on top and she sees he sees his his ex-wife with Ira, you know, <laughs> is a moment that I experienced. And there was a long time, even after I had I was engaged at one point and broke off the engagement. But for years after that, even into my next relationship, anytime I would see her on social media or maybe her number would pop up in my phone there would be this thing inside of me that was like oh my gosh am i not over this what's going on what's happening here am i not healthy and that's a very real thing because you are connected so deeply to a person and just because you've moved on and you've invested in your emotionally and intellectually spiritually whatever connected to someone else it doesn't take away the history that you have with that previous person, even if there's toxicity in that relationship. And that's that's hard to deal with because you're like, am, am I cheating on my spouse? Am I cheating on my girlfriend? What's happening here when I'm, 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 I'm having these feelings? That's when you have to kind of step back and go, okay, where am I now? As opposed to where was I when? And admitting the fact that you're always going to have a connection to someone that you share those deep emotional feelings for, or you know what? Let's take previous marriages. I've got friends of mine who have deep relationships with their, their ex-wives and ex-husbands. And that's partly due to the fact that they have kids with each other. That's a natural effect. <laughs> These children are the children of you and someone else. And so you're always going to have that connection to someone, but does it necessarily say, I can't move on. No, not at all. Because Aaron, to point out, you said it best. We have seasons, and the next season gives you the right to be with someone else, whether in a friendship or otherwise, because you have the right to live your life. And if you've chosen either because of good reasons or poor reasons, or because of toxicity or just a mutual agreement to not be in a relationship anymore, you have the right to move on. And I think that when you look at a movie like When Harry Met Sally, it doesn't challenge that, but I think it expresses the reality of the fact that these guys are moving on, but they still have history and they're still trying to figure out how to deal with that. And and ultimately, I think it, it creates a fight between the two of them because Harry's like, ah, how are you going to, you know, I, he says, Sally, how are you okay with all this when, you know, my life is... <clears throat> You know, I'm still, I guess I'm not over her yet. He didn't say that, but 
I think he feels that way in, in a lot of ways. We mentioned earlier about their their two friends, and I think this is a great component of the movie, that it's not just about Harry and Sally, or it doesn't just involve them, but it involves their, I guess they're good friends, uh, Jess and Marie. And I wondered, could the movie have worked as well without these two characters? And what is their actual getting together, Jess and Marie, say about them in contrast to Harry and Sally? Well... This movie would not have worked without them because the whole point goes back to the meat cutes that we described before. Um, the, the, um, this is a great example of a meat cute where two friends set up the other two friends with each other and it doesn't work and they fall in love with the people that set them up instead. And so I think that being the meat cute that they see a relationship forming in front of their eyes while theirs is fault, their friendship is falling apart, I think is a really key point of this film is that Jess doesn't have great relationship uh, experience. It's not as, you know, I don't want to say fatal, but it's not as difficult as Marie's previous uh, lovers of married men and things like that. And I think that, um, I mean, I know that there are a lot of scenes that I don't think would have worked without the counsel of these two characters. So there are a lot of scenes where, um, especially Jess, I think especially Jess to Harry, like whether it be, at the football game where Harry tells her, tells him that, um, that they're getting a divorce or whether it be the wagon wheel argument, which I think is a crucial point in the entire movie and was almost my connecting point because there is the scene in the film where Jess and, Jess and Marie decide that they're gonna, they're gonna move in together. And it's obviously a big deal and everything like that. And then Harry has some PTSD of when he moved in with his ex-wife. And they're, uh, Jess and Marie are having an argument over this hideous, hideous coffee table. And it is a giant wagon wheel that looks like it rolled in right off the plains of Oklahoma. And somebody just slapped a big slab of glass on top of it. Uh, Marie hates it. And Jess loves it. And Marie is saying that if they want to live together, Jess should definitely get rid of that table. And she asks for Sally's opinion. Sally agrees with Marie. And Jess tries to get Harry on his side so that it's kind of a boys boys versus girls kind of conversation. And Harry just goes off about how these little things don't actually matter. But when you're cohabitating, start putting your name on everything because in the middle of, you know, your divorce proceedings in the future, you're going to be going 10 for 10 over this coffee table. And it really isn't going to matter in the greater scheme of things. And it's the first time that he had seen Helen in years after their divorce. Um, and she was there with the man that she cheated on him with. And it's this great scene where the way that it closes after Harry storms out is just look, uh, Marie looks at Jess and says, I will never love that coffee table. Like it's not going to matter if we get divorced or if we separate in the future, because no matter what, I will never want this hideous coffee table. And so it brings, they both bring such, like, such light, fun brevity to scenes that I think that this, this movie would not have worked without them, in my opinion. They obviously could have found a different mechanism for the light, the lightness and the brevity. But in my opinion, these two are most important given, I mean, even at the toast in their wedding, they say, if we had found either of you remotely attractive, we wouldn't be at our wedding. So I, I just, I think that this film is centered around the possibility of meeting somebody when you're when you're looking for the one and you end up missing somebody entirely. So I think this is a, a great small example of that. 
Yeah, I completely agree. And that scene is awesome. I mean, that whole scene is awesome. She says, tell me I'll never be out there again. Because she's like, this is awful. Like watching these people go through this relationship and these struggles. And once you have found, and that's so relatable. Once you have found that person, you don't ever want, it's where I'm at. Okay. I real talk. Like I've been single for the most of the last, what, eight years now. I think I may have dated a couple of times, but it's really hard to sign up on (laughs) farmersonly.com. Farmers only. Farmers if you want to know about that guy. joke, you have to go back and listen to the last episode. Don't say anymore. Um, but, <laughs> but no, like I, I get it. You know, I'm feel just like Marie. I don't want to deal with that ever again. And it's so heartfelt when she says that. And Jess's response is perfect. He puts his arm around her casually and just says, you will never have to be out there again and gives her that confirmation that she needs. And again, the writing in this movie, what I love about it is, the comedy comes in that zinger at the end where we get done with the emotional moment that is impactful. And then we get to see her walk, him walking out at the coffee table anyway. <laughs> like it's, it's going away, right? Like all this Not went down. The look, on his, the look on his face is perfect. He's like, I know. No, He's no, like, no. just don't say anything. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like, yep, we were right. It's hideous. I think in a lot of ways, I, it's, it's perfectly balanced, right? I don't, I don't want to see a movie. It would be a completely different movie if it was Marie and Jess's love story and their friends were Harry and Sally. So I don't even know that I can really fully imagine that. But what I love about them is that to me, they are like a current version of all of the old couples we see footage of throughout the film, because they are a couple who intellectually fell in love. When they meet and they are attracted to each other, it's not because they want to jump in each other's pants because they find each other hot. And that's not how it kind of starts. It starts because Marie is talking about restaurants and an article that Jess wrote. And they connect on this thing, this this interest that they have, this shared love of something. And I feel like when you have that as a start for your relationship, it can definitely lead to a stronger foundation than a, a lot of our relationships tend to start. It's like, hey, I saw you in the bar, and the only reason I'm over here talking to you is because I find you physically attractive. But when you're really not in that position, and you're not starting with that basis, and then that first aha thing of attraction is something other than physical, then it's not as hard to like worry about that whole sex driving the relationship thing that Harry seems very hung up on. And so I just think that they exhibit this ideal scenario for people meeting and becoming attracted to each other. And I love it because I guess I love it because I agree with it maybe, but like, I truly do feel like you're going to have more success when that is the foundation of your relationship. And I, I love it because it shows Harry and Sally that there is something really magical about having that kind of interaction with each other. Um, and so, yeah, I, lo- I think that they're perfect. I think that they have to be in the movie and it wouldn't be the same movie without them getting together because they are able to show Harry and Sally a different version of what it's like to be together. And, and they're going to, they're going to take that much more serious because it's their friends 
that are showing them this success than they would if it was just someone saying, hey, guess what? It's possible for you to have a wonderful relationship. But when you see it in your own reality, it feels more attainable. I look at their relationship as typical. <laughs> and when I say that, I don't mean like how they got together. I thought that the the double date was a great way to get them together. But what you have is Jess getting his ego stroked because Marie quotes him, which I would feel that way too. I'm like, oh my gosh, I wrote something and somebody is quoting it back to me. Are you kidding me? She didn't know he wrote that. There was a genuine compliment in what she did because she found value. She endorsed that quote. She, you know, when we use quotes, we're essentially saying, I agree with what this person's saying. And they're saying it much better than I could in a lot of ways. So for him to be validated by that, Aaron, you mentioned, Aaron, one point, you mentioned that it wasn't about a physical attraction. It was about an intellectual attraction. And I like the fact that they teetered around um, wanting to get together and they were basically getting permission from their best friends to say, hey, can I call her? Can I call him? And they end up getting together. But the the nature of their relationship, I think, became what we normally see in a romance or in a typical relationship. They have a, quote, honeymoon period. They start living together and then they go through what we see as one of our favorite scenes, which is the coffee table scene. And it exposes a lot of what relationships, especially those from adults who are just tired of prom dates, tired of weekend flings. They want something permanent. I think it, it brings that genuineness back to the relationship. I don't think they're, they're cookie cutter relationship, but I think what they do is they show us what a relationship looks like when you are attracted and you're trying to work out your problems through that relationship, as opposed to Harry and Sally's relationship that was not based on attraction. It was based on convenience it was based on serendipity the movie takes place what over 15 years i think and there are moments when they run into each other and as opposed to jess and marie who act as really great foils for both harry and sally but they get together and their life their relationship is kind of boxed into what we kind of make assumptions about yep they're happy with each other they're probably having great sex and then now they're living together, and they're trying to figure out how to make that work, which is something we see in TV shows and movies and things like that as supplemental to what might be a bigger narrative going on. But what I like about their relationship is that they challenge Harry and Sally with their own experiences, and they allow both Harry and Sally to realize, you know what? While these aren't our problems, they stem from similar things. And they allow Harry and Sally to have that honest conversation. One of the great moments in this, I think some of Harry's best moments are when he's apologizing to Sally. <laughs> when they're walking after they have dinner, uh, once they meet at the bookstore and he asks, you know, what's the statute of limitations on apologies? And she says 10 years. And he doesn't say, I'm sorry, but you know that he's basically apologizing. And then he does it again in this one crucial scene where there's so much tension and he goes, I'm sorry. And he just hugs her. And then they, you feel that tension just get let out. I don't think they could have experienced that had 
Jess and Marie's relationship been in existence. And so I think that in a lot of ways, just like Jess and Marie's relationship wouldn't have existed without Harry and Sally's, it's vice versa. No matter what the outcome of Harry and Sally's relationship was, I don't think they could have experienced that independently. Obviously, you could have written it that way, but I don't think it would have been nearly as successful from a narrative standpoint. Some of the other elements come into this. I wanted to bring up uh, Aaron 1.0. You mentioned the real story interviews that interlude different different parts of the movie. As my wife and I were watching it, she said, do you think those are real people? And it seemed like that. I mean, not like fake, not like they're aliens or anything like that, but are these actors or these actual people that are, that are being interviewed? Come to find out, Rob Reiner used actors, but the stories are real. And I only kind of got that confirmed before going to IMDb trivia when I saw one of the, uh, one of the couples, the wife or the, the, the girlfriend was an actress that I, I recognized. But it doesn't take away the fact that these interviews, feel very genuine. Um, the setting, New York, uh, probably one of the historically one of the more romantic cities <laughs> in the country. I, I wonder what would happen if this pl- this took place in Utah or in you know, Wyoming, you know, a sm- not a famous city or state. There are all these different elements that exist. And I wanted to ask both of you, how did they contribute for you to the overall narrative of the film? For me, this movie was made by those moments and I laugh because I I was in a very toxic relationship a few years ago that led to a lot of mental health issues and led to a lot of recovery for me in the last few years. And being with my boyfriend has been very eye-opening and very, um, it's taught me a lot about myself and a lot about relationships, but he's helped me heal in a lot of ways and a lot, releasing a lot of things that I thought were character traits of, men or previous people that I dated and showing me the exact opposite. And ironically, one of my best friends, Carrie, her nickname for him is Melon because there's a love scene in that movie where she's like, and then I just knew, I knew the way you know about a good melon. And that's just, that's what we call him. We call him the good melon. Um, and it's just, uh, these, these stories are just, they're, I'm going to get emotional. I'm an emotional wreck right now anyway. But like there are a few scenes that just every time the way that the actor, and I know that they're actors, but the way that they deliver some of these stories and some of these lines. And there's one where this woman is holding her husband's hand and she just says, he looked just the same. He looked exactly the same. And just the way her voice breaks in love and in happiness and in joy, it's just these stories are so moving. And I even find the one about the man who had an arranged marriage and said that if she didn't look okay, he didn't want to marry her, but he snuck over to the next village and she looked okay. So I said, all right, I guess I'll marry her. And they've been together ever since. So, I mean, it's even like not these deep romantic ones, but things that started off as shallow and they grew into these beautiful relationships. And ironically, if you look at the statistics on arranged marriages, they're actually pretty great in comparison to (laughs) unarranged marriages. But it's just, it's one of those things where these stories are, they're just, they're beautiful. And I just, they, they, they move even the dead parts of me. Yeah, I would agree with the understanding of them being, you know, more successful arranged marriages because of what I was saying earlier, where I think, you know, love is a choice. And when you're in this arranged marriage, you end up 
deciding every day that you're going to be happy and you're going to make this relationship into something that is fruitful and positive for the two of you. And so it grows from that deep decision-making process and not based on a feeling, which is what most of the world is wrapped up in. You know, we all, we all get hyped and we all feel deeply these emotions and these, these romantic feelings and we let them drive us. And so that's, but what they not, actually say that the reason why they're more successful is actually because by getting married at the beginning of your relationship, you're taking the pressure off of what a lot of people see the end goal of a relationship is, is to get married. So by getting married oh, first, yeah. you've actually taken that off the table and you're growing and learning and, and aging with your partner and learning those things in the beginning. And you're oh, yeah. able to do it without the pressure of, okay, if I have to act this way, then I'll act this way for years until he proposes. And then the, like, and that's why a lot of people joke about like the minute you get married, the curtain gets pulled back and you see who your partner really is. And it's like, it's with, when you take that off the table, they say that because of who you are as you grow in this relationship that has been arranged. And there are a lot of cultures that still do arranged marriages that you are able to get out of a marriage. So we don't want people to think that like, well, you can't get divorced in an arranged marriage because of the culture, blah, blah, blah. And that's why they're more successful. There are plenty of instances where a lot of cultures have aged with the times. And while they may set up arranged marriages, they still allow their children or whomever they're arranging to step out of these marriages if, if they, if they so desire. But just by taking that pressure away, but these, these couples are couples from different timelines. And I think that that is something that you can't ignore in the movie is that they did choose actors and love stories that were from decades previous to where the way people approach relationships were very different. I think the youngest people were like the, the people, the guy that was married like five times and then met his first wife at a funeral. And then they got back, they got married again, like 16 years after they'd gotten divorced or whatever. I think they were the youngest and they were still in like their sixties. I think that for me, that was the most inspirational part of the movie going to your one more takeaway. Um, because it's, it's weird because they're actors, but because they're real life stories, they feel like documentary style true stories in the midst of this fictional world. And so it's different when I'm watching a fictional relationship versus these, what I see as people recounting these true stories. And I'm like, wow, that's a real actual success story. Harry and Sally are getting together. That's a movie success story. And that's great. But I love hearing about these real life um, positive relationships. And I thought that it, it was just great because there's so many different kinds of them. I think if we just had like one, it wouldn't be nearly as impactful. But like you said, Aaron, the difference in the stories from something like the craziness of that to an arranged marriage, there's all these different versions of what your relationship can be and still be a wonderful, loving, amazing marriage. Like there's not one single formula that creates the perfect marriage. And I think that that was showing us that. And I really enjoyed those um, throughout the movie. I, every time one would come up, I would almost like perk up and like lock in because I was excited about it. And I also really love the soundtrack. And it was really, really stuck out to me because this is one of the soundtracks that does something that I find awesome. And it, every single song, the lyrics to those songs were applicable to the situation at hand. I want to talk about it a little bit more in our connecting point specifically, but I am a person who 
is apt to communicate through songs. I have been known to send people a song to listen to because I want them to imagine those lyrics coming from me to them or whatever the situation is. And so I just, I just think it's a really clever device to use and it engages me further in a story when that element of something that's seemingly just background music or a song that sounds good in the moment is actually saying something and informing the situation even further because of the lyrics that are so quietly being heard behind what's actually happening in the story. I just, I love, 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 love it. The soundtrack and the interviews in particular complemented the narrative in their own ways. Uh, Aaron, one point you mentioned that the lyrics themselves tied into the current situation. I actually didn't pick up on that. And so I think uh, that's something that the next time I see this, which will be, you know, inevitable, I'm going to focus in on that. I also like the fact that this does play, take place in New York, a place that has 8 million people. And somehow these two people continue to find each other in bookstores or coffee shops or wherever. And what makes this kind of interesting is that while all this feels natural, it all feels authentic, organic, there's still that element of the fact that we're in a movie. We are watching this couple meet and meet again and meet a third time and eventually connect. And they're spending their time hanging out in the city that never sleeps. They are hanging out in Harry's apartment, which is huge. Um, putting a rug down, talking about these blind dates that they went on. And I like the fact that you don't have to feel like this is a documentary. You don't have to feel like this is a, you know, a romance movie. It has this really great balance. And in particular, those interviews, what's beautiful about those is that every story is different. And it almost gives permission for us to wonder what's going to happen to Harry and Sally. I mean, all these couples ended up together. We assume that they all got married, but that was really never stated, I don't think. They just got together. We know that some obviously did, the arranged marriages and some that spoke directly to that. But intertwined with this narrative, you have these different interviews. And so it asks us to sit back and say, we don't know what's going to happen to Harry and Sally. We're just on this road with them. And I think it's really fitting that at the end, they're telling their story. And it's almost like they've gotten into this exclusive club of what a successful relationship can look like, what a long-term relationship can look like. And it can be messy and it can be beautiful all at the same time because that all-encompassing thing is what makes the relationship what it is. Doesn't make it bad or good. It makes it what it is and it makes it worth living in. And if you had put them at the beginning of this and shown them together, this wouldn't have worked. So to have them in this camp of all these other couples reminds you that, yeah, they earned this. They earned the right to sit on this couch and tell their story. Not because they passed the test, not because they didn't do this, but because they lived it. 
they lived and they worked through this relationship and they owned all their crap and they loved each other through it. And it's a celebration. And I love that Rob Reiner puts them in that because it allows us to celebrate that with them. As long as you put your wedding cakes, chocolate sauce on the side, that's fine. Yes, exactly. Because <laughs> not everybody likes it on the actual slice of the cake. You know, it's important it's, to keep, important. give people options. Yeah. <laughs> You're so true. You speak so much good wisdom there, Aaron 2.0. One more question before we lead into our connecting points, and that's, is When Harry Met Sally possible? in 2019 as a movie. One of the questions that that uh, that Aaron 1.0 put in the notes here was, has online dating ruined our ability to, quote, get to know one another organically, especially in things like Farmers Anonymous or whatever the dating website is? Farmers um, yeah. And, and I actually wonder, you know, do gender stereotypes still exist, that emotionally absent man versus the, the controlling woman? Because... While these things were there in the 80s, the idea of same-sex relationships and the, the, the new idea of these different kinds of relationships that exist and um, particularly like legalizing same-sex marriage in, in different states, how does that change the landscape of a movie like this? Could it exist in 2019 with that kind of landscape in the background? No. I mean, it could, but it wouldn't be received fairly well, I don't think, because it's not uh, diverse enough, and it's it does lean on stereotypes that I think a lot of people may not appreciate watching. But I don't. Th- it's interesting because I feel like we can watch it through a lens of nostalgia and through a connection to the past, and still enjoy it and love it. Whereas if it was to come out today, it would be looked down upon. And I don't know how it was received when it first came out. Uh, I don't know if it was a hit or if is this was one of those movies that's kind of stuck with people on rewatches and grown on them. I'd be interested to find that out, actually. But I don't think that this would go over well because I think we are much more aware of these stereotypes as things that can be corrected and things that can be changed uh, than we were at the time. And... I just, I just don't foresee as I feel, I foresee a very strong segment of moviegoers who would watch this and just be irritated with Harry's character instead of maybe enjoying seeing the growth in him throughout the movie. And it would just, it would impact their viewing of the film. And when it comes to online dating, this is just something I'm passionate about and probably uh, because I'm stuck in it. And Aaron might have felt the same way a year ago before she uh, finally found this long-term relationship that she's so happy in and I'm very happy for her. But I do think that online yeah, dating really sounds like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not jealous at all, okay? Um I think that online dating has significantly I would not say ruined, but I think that it has created an enormous challenge for relationships and how people get together. And this is coming of course um, which most stuff does through my own experience. But when we go online and we are looking for a significant other, websites are built around usually the first factor being attractiveness, which is not necessarily something that is 
new. I mean, if you were looking for someone in a bar, um, or if, you know, your group of friends was meeting another group of friends, attractiveness is always going to be a visual thing that will immediately cue you into whether or not you have certain attraction, for lack of a better word, to someone else. So that's kind of not necessarily even problematic. But what websites that give us these profiles to create do is in kind of making a checklist of our interests and telling people about each about ourselves in paragraph form, we almost are taking the mystery out of well, we are taking a lot of the mystery out of getting to know each other and going through that process where you're growing together and you're discovering things. And so we create barriers to potential relationships before they even begin. Because if I find that someone is not into movies, I might immediately skip over that person because they don't have movies as a primary interest, or maybe they like something I don't like. And so I'm now in this habit of searching for kind of like the perfect checklist person. Whereas in an organic meeting of two people who meet at work or meet in school or in the grocery style store aisle, wherever it may be, you don't know those things about each other. And so you have the ability to connect and then be willing to go on this journey of exploration before you might find out that, oh, that person doesn't like the band that I like. And so you're creating a deal, a deal breaker essentially for yourself. And, and I know that that is to some extent a choice that we all make people who are into online dating. So we have to own that we allow ourselves to do that, but that is built around creating that in us. Like we are supposed to do it that way. And I just, it, it wears me down, man. It, it does. And I think that when I was watching When Harry Met Sally, it stuck out to me because I was like, gosh, I want that. And and not necessarily saying, oh, woe is me. It's not available to me, but inspirational. Back to, to Aaron's one more takeaway again about like maybe I need to be more intentional about creating opportunities that I can meet people in a scenario where it's a when Harry met Sally scenario or it's a Jess and Marie scenario. And it's not expecting the magical like button and message to get returned from someone online because match.com tells me in a commercial that 75% of relationships, that whatever result in marriage, you know what I mean? And so I'm not, I need to stop looking for the quick fix and go back to the organic method. And so I, I really was just, I found this so refreshing to watch and I just love seeing them learn about each other and go through the ups and downs of a relationship and not checklist each other. Okay. So again, I got some points. Um, first things first, online dating didn't ruin the ability to meet people organically. Really crappy people in the world ruined it. Online dating is how my, my dad and my stepmom met. And that was almost 16 years ago. Online dating has been around for a while. It's not a new concept. And again, as you said, attractiveness is the first thing that generally people notice about each other. Regardless, it sounds to me, honestly, Erin, that you are approaching online dating completely the opposite of way of what it was intended. Those interests that they, that they have you checking off 
are to find points of commonality, not to find things that are missing. So somebody not having movies checked, just because that's not a top thing, you're looking for something that, instead of looking for what you have in common, you're looking for what's missing from your list. And that, that to me seems like the way that you're approaching it is what's detrimental, not the fact that it's just an online dating profile that gives you the best of. The other side point of it is, you also potentially may have kept yourself from wasting three months of somebody's time or of your own time because you find out all of a sudden this person hates X, Y, and Z, or they don't believe in God, or, you know, they're a satanic worshiper from goodness knows where in Florida. So like at the end of the day, like there are benefits that come from online dating and having those checklist style. What really ruins the ability to meet people organically are rapists and murderers in the world. As a woman, if you approach me at a bookshop, one, I'm here to look at books, not to look at men. Please back away from me. Two, almost every single woman in any public setting is automatically going to be on guard for men that approach them. Period. And you know what? Online dating didn't do that to us. Really crappy men in the world did. So at the end of the day, it is not online dating that makes me fear meeting men organically. Online dating is how I met Owen. But at the end of the day, it's really crappy people in the world and really crummy situation. I'm doing everything I can not to curse right now. And it's, it's proving very difficult. But that's not what ruined it. Now, to your first question is whether or not Harry, when Harry met Sally, could be made today. No, it can't. And the reason why it can't, on top of the suggestions that, that Aaron said, are that it's already been made and it's inspired all of these other movies that you can't create. You can't recreate that because it's the foundation for what we already have in movies. So you can continue to see its inspiration in films and you can continue to see movies that fight gender stereotypes and things like that by putting them on full display. But I don't think you can recreate something when it is a foundational film for other other movies that we still have being made today. Um, but as far as online dating goes, no, I don't think online dating ruined the ability to meet people organically. You have that you have that option every day, but you can't be upset when women regard you with their keys between their fingers because we've all had experiences that make us that wary or we've heard about women that met somebody through online dating and then ended up chopped up in a dumpster so what happens is really crappy people in this world made us significantly more afraid to meet people organically like online dating never made me feel afraid the few dates that i went on before i met owen anytime that i met on a date my friends and or my family had a shared location. Anytime we changed locations, I let them know. So technology helped keep me safe. They had this person's picture from their online dating profile and their contact number that they gave me. My best friend had a full like CIA report before I went out on my first date with Owen. So it's, it's not technology. It's the people that are using technology and what they go to it with. So I think that at least for you personally, approaching online dating differently with the mentality of looking at what we do have in common instead of, well, I really want somebody who has this in common with me, I think is the exact, like, that's the approach that online dating was created for is to have you mark all those checklists so that they can find people with common interests to you, not people that didn't check something off of this box. I completely, no, I completely agree. I, I wasn't necessarily saying I approach everything totally that way. I'm just giving examples of ways that over the years, things that multiple people ways they can approach it but i do i just i disagree i think that you are automatically cutting out people in your life who could potentially be an amazing partner that maybe 
don't have any common interests. And you will but it never know. Like you are cutting them out, not everybody. I know. I'm saying, well, I said that, but I said that in my thing. I said, I explained that it's us making the choice. I'm, what I'm saying is that at least in my experience and having gone through, you know, conversations with male friends that, that have used online dating, the feeling that you get when using it is of one that you are specifically intending to be looking for someone that is matching your interests. And that is what triggers the, okay, I'm interested in you, so I would like to get to know you. Because that's what it exists for. It exists to match up your interests. That's then only as you, what is. Then so I, you, I guess maybe approach it like you would approach something organically. Do it entirely on looks and hope for the best. Which, yeah. I, I, like, exactly, I'm just, like, just flip it on its head. Like, if you, if you saw a cute girl in a bar and you wanted to approach her, could you just see a cute girl with a, like, with a profile and also approach her? Either way, you're you could. still putting yourself yes. out there and being vulnerable and you're taking the risk of not, the, you know, realizing this person hates movies or thinks that. Right. But the difference is that when you're in an online dating world, which is what we live in and what revolves around, I can go up to a woman and send a message because I'm interested a hundred times and get zero responses, maybe one or two if I'm lucky. In a bar, the woman has to at least acknowledge my existence and say yes or no. There is there is a an immediate action that occurs in which she gets to make a decision and it involves me being present. And so for men, it is very tough because you're in a position where you are competing. You're putting yourself into an X amount of space and giving someone the ability to then compare your resume to another resume before they're able to even ever get to know you and have any interaction with you. And so for me, I just totally believe that it is, it is very problematic for the way in which we meet people. And I personally I, just I, miss. I can, I can see that. Like I, I do, one. I do understand where you're coming from. And I get the people that are like, I miss just being able to walk up to somebody and say, hello, may I buy you a drink or can I take you out to dinner sometime? But I don't think that you can, one, put that solely on online dating. But I also would just like to point out that both men and women are judging you based on your quote-unquote resume when you approach them at a bar as well. So it's not something that's only happening in online dating. I don't know how many men that are like, I don't like what she's wearing or I like what she's wearing too much. Or women that are like, uh, his shoes are off the rack so he probably doesn't have a great job. Or look at what car he drives. Like men and women are both aesthetically driven people and i think that by saying that it's i think the problem that men run into is the ego issue in it more than anything else is the fact that rejection can come in the form of no answer at all versus an answer straight to your face regardless it's still a rejection and it's still a blow to your ego and the fact that somebody didn't respond stings even more than somebody that just said i'm sorry i'm not interested but regardless, you're still getting the same answer. So it's just one of those things where you have it's you don't always get the closure that you want in life. And I think that if you had approached 100 girls in a bar versus 100 people, 100 women online, like you still have the chance of getting maybe one or the same one or two positive responses. But I understand that by having it happen and you're an active participant in that yes or no. I guess for me, I'm thinking, well, if she says no, you're not really an active participant anymore, any more than if she said no online. Like, it's still the same level of rejection, I guess, for me. But I digress. Like, we're just, we're probably not going to see eye to eye on it. And that's just me. Like, I, I'm one of those people where it's like, if I say no to a man and then he spends 30 minutes trying to convince me 
why I should give him a chance. He's lost even more than if I had never responded in the first place. Oh, but, for I'm not sure. saying that to you. I'm not saying that to you. No, I'm no. In general. Yeah. No, I think you're right. I think you're right because we're always going to, we have completely, we're both different genders and we have different experiences, positive and negative with different forms of dating. So we're always going to bring that into it as well, of course. Patrick, did you have? Sorry, no. just before I Thoughts? forget, Are you, Aaron, just... <laughs> you had asked, no, Aaron, you had asked about how the movie did. Um, whenever it opened in Ooh. July, it only opened in like, I think like 30 or 40 theaters at first. And in the first week, it grossed over a million dollars. And so then they opened it nationwide, like the following week or the week after that. And oh, so, that's like insane for like yeah, a small for a movie to do that. It opened the same weekend as uh, Batman, Indiana Jones, and The Last Crusade, um, <laughs> and I think one, I think one of the Ghostbusters too. Wow, that's not yeah. That's, so that's, nobody that's, expected <laughs> it to be the hit that it that it was at all. Nobody went into it thinking that this is going to be it. So do but, you know if is this what kind of launched Nora Ephron then and her? career as a romantic I, I mean specialist. Nora I don't know whether or not like it launched Nora Ephron because Rob approached her so I would assume that if Rob is approaching you you are already a household name somewhere or a well-known writer somewhere mm-hmm. but yeah. I do know that it led to other successful Nora Ephron romantic movies okay sorry Patch continue how do you feel uh, well you know you guys have said everything that I was not thinking at all, but I, it, this is good. I, I actually, I don't think it would work in today's market. I think pieces of it could. And I think looking at it as a, as a template to pull things from is probably the best way to go because you don't want to reinvent perfection at this point. I think if you're going to pull anything, you need to pull out, uh, singing telegrams to get your girl back through voicemail. If I could relate to any part of this movie, which there are lots, that would be one that stands out to me is the ability to call someone I'm having relationship issues with and leaving singing telegrams to try to, uh, to get her to pick up the phone. So if we can pull that out and put it in a updated movie, romantic comedy, I would love to see that. Well, we come to the part of the show where we get to talk about our connecting points. And for this one, as many as we had, this one topped all three of our lists. It is, of course, the final scene when Harry and Sally get together. We could quote it, but we'd rather let the movie do the talking for us. So here is that. I've been doing a lot of thinking, and the thing is, I love you. What? I love you. How do you expect me to respond to this? How about you love me, too? How about I'm leaving? Doesn't what I said mean anything to you? I'm sorry, Harry. I know it's New Year's Eve. I know you're feeling lonely, but you just can't show up here, tell me you love me, and expect that to make everything all right. It doesn't work this way. Well, how does it work? I don't know, but not this way. How about this way? I love that you get cold when it's 71 degrees out. I love that it takes you an hour and a half to order a sandwich. I love that you get a little crinkle above your nose when you're looking at me like I'm nuts. I love that after I spend a day with you, I can still smell your perfume on my clothes. And I love that you are the last person I want to talk to before I go to sleep at night. 
And it's not because I'm lonely. And it's not because it's New Year's Eve. I came here tonight because when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. You see? That is just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And I hate you, Harry. I really hate you. All right. Aaron 2.0, why don't you kick us off? Okay, so the iconic, iconic line of when you realize you want to spend the rest of your life with somebody, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible, was entirely improvised. He spit that off the mother-freaking-cuff. Yeah, Billy Crystal, the OG. So that's also why it, like, it sits in my bones, is a lot, so a lot of the movie... Billy Crystal just improvised back and forth and was riffing and a lot of things ended up in the movie like where he's like uh the the sphinxy thing and like the the pepper on my paprika pepper and my paprika my paprika like all of that was all improv and like you can see Meg Ryan breaking character in that scene and she even looks over at Rob Reiner who's offset and they ended up still keeping it in the movie so this for me was just the quintessential line just because it is so it's improv. So it's just, it's like straight from the heart and just it, you, you, it's, it's true. Like you, when you've fallen in love with somebody, you just want everything to be in that one moment forever. Like you, whether it be existing in that one moment or just spending your life in that one moment, you want every day to wake up and feel those feelings again. Yeah. You're, I did not know that that was improvised. I already loved it. And that just, like you said, it takes it to a whole nother level. Uh, it, and I think it speaks to how great these two are as in their roles, how ingrained you are in assuming the identity of that character, that you would know that that is the right improvisation, the perfect thing to say um, at that moment. Because it's not Billy Crystal improvising in a sense, it's it's Harry. Right. It's Harry who knows that that's what Harry would say. And I just think that that's really, really special. Um, for me, I had mentioned earlier about the lyrics. So I wanted to point that out. And that's why I clipped it the way I did, because at the beginning of this scene, the background song it's playing is it had to be you. And the specific words, if you caught them right before we go into the dialogue are for nobody else gave me a thrill with all your faults. I love you still. It had to be you. And that's just an extremely powerful thing for me. And I guess it kind of ties into my rant earlier about online dating and, and wanting a checklist of a person. But I just feel that there is a, a level of accepting faults that occurs in relationships that sometimes is not addressed or not acknowledged, maybe, that we think of marriages or long-term partnerships as being perfect. and acknowledging that with these perfect lyrics that lead us into this scene, it just fits so darn well, in my opinion. Um, and I loved everything about this. I was so emotionally invested and for a movie to kind of telegraph itself. I mean, I fully believed this is what was going to happen. There was no doubt in my mind that they were going to eventually get together. We were going through the rom-com formula, perhaps I would not have been had I been watching this in 89 because I wouldn't have seen 20 imitators do the same exact thing. 
but because I did, it, it didn't it still didn't matter because of what Harry says. And when you launch into this unscripted seat of your pants explanation of what you love about a person, like that's special to me. And it was special to Sally. And I loved her response, her telling him, I really hate you. I hate you. Maybe it's because I've done that. Maybe it's because I've experienced that. Maybe it's just that's my personality, but using that as a way to express how much you love someone was easily relatable for me. And I mean, I was just bawling. I was so happy for them in this moment that they had both grown to this point of communication and I was excited for their future. And I just love the way this movie wraps up. This scene is right. Talk about that inspirational line, though, about her saying how much she hates him um, Mm -hmm. and things I hate about you. I was just going to say that this is right up there with with Kat's poem. It's I mean, it it absolutely does the the same thing. I love it. I absolutely love it. I think for me, when I look at this scene, I start thinking about how Rob Reiner and Nora Ephron play with timing. You obviously have this whole bit of. Harry and Sally coming together at different points in their life over the course of 10 to 15 years. But what is the one thing when you think about a romantic movie in New Year's Eve, what happens on New Year's Eve at midnight? Two people got Watch a kid. people in the neck. There you go. I don't go. know. Cause I always stay home and drink. What do those people like typical romantic kids. comedies do? Pity party, population okay. Aaron. They kiss. All right. All right. Pessimist. Let's, <laughs> let's go with the optimistic side. Two people would kiss at midnight, right? What I what I noticed this time around is that their resolution happened after midnight. Like they're arguing straight through the countdown. And what you would normally expect is, ah, they're getting together and they're going to kiss right at midnight. Nope. They get through and it's almost like a minute, minute and a half after 12. And you don't really care because you're so focused on them and what Harry is saying And the fact that he's calling out what we would consider, if we didn't know this couple, quirks and flaws and idiosyncrasies and things that might annoy us, he absolutely adores. He tells Sally all these things. And when she receives that, when she hears that the things that make up who she is are things that he wants in his life, that's got to validate her in ways that Joe could never do. Let's just let's just be real, right? And you look at their relationship and it all comes down to this, this fact that the truth is, I love you. Blunt, direct, straight to the point. There's no, there's no romantic, like, complexity to this. The truth is, I've been doing a lot of thinking. The truth is, I love you. I almost wish I would have proposed my wife that way, but I couldn't bring myself to do that. And I think it speaks to, this is who Harry is. Harry has always been a guy who speaks his mind. He's not afraid to say whatever comes to his mind. Maybe he's a little bit more appointed as he's gotten older. But he's unapologetic about his feelings, just as he was when they first met. Except now his feelings are genuinely affectionate towards her. And the fact that a day without her is a day that should be forgotten because he needs her. But 
when they finally get together, it doesn't feel like they're fawning over each other. It feels like they've accepted the fact that, you know what? We're finally hitting the right time. This is the moment that we need to be here. This is our moment. This is our time down here, you know? And I think that you have that moment as a means to not put an exclamation point on the movie, but a nice little period at the end of it. Like, ah, I can breathe out because as much as I would have been fine with them not getting together, when they did, I felt myself celebrating probably more than other romantic comedies. And it wasn't because I did or didn't expect it, but it's because I felt more invested in this couple than I do a lot of couples in a romantic comedy because romantic comedies are there to kind of pull at your heartstrings, but not necessarily get you to feel fully invested in these characters. You root for them to get together, but more importantly, you're rooting for their friendship to get resolved because that's what they value more than anything else. The fact that they are significant to each other, not that the sex is great, not that they're romantically attracted, but the fact that they can resolve this relationship that, has so much history and they don't want to lose that. And I thought it was a great ending to, uh, to, or a great, I guess, conclusion to their relationship. And of course you have that little appendix with them being interviewed with those other couples and making that club of great stories. Well, that wraps up another episode of Feelin' Film, Aaron 2.0. It's been great having you on the show these past few episodes. Where can people find you online to connect? Yeah, you guys can find me on Twitter, Aaron underscore Hundley. My first name is spelled a little wonky. It's E-R-Y-N-N-E. Or you can find me on Instagram at essentially Aaron. I have a Facebook page, but I'll be honest, rarely updated. You can always find me trolling the the comment section of the Feel and Film <laughs> Facebook page, too. And you do that so well, as most of our listeners and Facebook contributors do. So we're glad you're, you're there. Uh, we invite you all to continue spreading the love you have for the show as much as you can, uh, encouraging reviews, participating in the Facebook group, becoming a patron. But above all, just keep listening because that's the biggest thing you can do for us. Next week, we head back to the theater to discuss Joker with Andrew B. Dice of ScreenRant.com, and you do not want to miss that. Aaron 1.0, Aaron 2.0, thank you guys for a great conversation, and we'll talk soon. Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling film.